You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Throughout history, there have been countless tales of fictitious kings, legendary rulers, and shadowy monarchs reigning over distant and unknown lands. However, one king in particular, although lesser known today, would impact the course of history well beyond the likes of other ambiguous historical figures. Beginning in the 12th century, stories began to circulate in medieval Europe of a man called Prester John. Despite his unassuming name, John was rumored to be the savior of Christendom, a mysterious and all-powerful ruler who was maybe the only thing standing between the Saracens and the Holy Land. He was a man the Crusader kings counted as an ally without having ever met. He was a man whose existence saw popes and emperors deploy explorers and emissaries into the wilds of Central Asia in search of. But who Prester John really was is even stranger than the stories. The truth behind the legend is a bizarre tale that takes us from the walls of Jerusalem into the courts of the Mongol Khans, and finally, to the ancient Christian temples of the kingdom of Abyssinia. The SS Mastoria is about to disembark, so prepare yourselves, everyone, for the maiden voyage of the Mastorians podcast as we travel to the ends of this world and beyond. And welcome to episode one of the Mastorians podcast. I am Andrew McKay, and joining me is my co-host on this journey, Nicholas Cox. Hello, voyages. This is Nicholas Cox. I am your guide to the archives below the archives. What is beyond the library and hidden under the books? That's right. I'm an archaeologist, artist, author, and I am one of your two podcast hosts on this lovely evening or daytime, depending on when you're listening to this. Welcome to yes. episode one of the Mistorians, the maiden voyage of the SS Mistoria, as she sets sail over the airways <laughs> straight into the welcome harbors of your ears. That's not a weird thing to say. Andrew, oh. what oh, no. are we and what do we do? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, first first and foremost, I feel like that's it's a really good thing you came into it with all of that because I wasn't prepared with that level of creativity describing us right off the top. And no, we are we are definitely docking in your ear holes with uh, many many amazing things uh, on the show. No, I'm really I'm really excited. Honestly, it's uh, no, I'm I'm really excited to be here and on the Mistorians, I feel like we're really going to find find a lot of things and stories that people have definitely never heard before. So, as far as the Mistorians goes, I mean, I mean, Nick, why don't you just really try to dive into a little bit of what we're trying to do on the Mastorians? So what we're hoping to do on our 
our podcast here is explore elements of history that are lesser known, things that exist at the periphery of the stories that are told that dwell in the ephemera between fact and fiction, things that might be historical, might be fantasy, and often toe the line between the two. So we want to talk about historical stories, important stories about people, places, and things, but stories people don't know, stories that slip a little bit, you know, beyond the archive and under the books, as I said to begin with. So it is the history of mysteries, and hence the Mystorians, and that's what we are here to do today with episode one. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Okay, well, I, I guess I should, that's a perfect segue. We should just do, are you ready to just jump right into our, our first topic? Oh, I am. I have a booklet full of our first topic. It has been a sleepless Amazing. couple of days. I mean, okay, sorry, before I before I dive right into that too, and okay, everyone bear with us because this is episode one. There's going to be a few hiccups. We're figuring this out, but that's okay. Uh, you did a good job of describing yourself. I'm going to quickly just say who the hell I am because <laughs> some people might, rec- might recognize my voice uh, from, from a few other things, but I'm the co-host of Into the Portal podcast, so I feel like I am, I'm prepared for this journey. I have a little bit, a little bit of a background of looking into some of this, some of the, the madness that we're going to get into. Although today's episode, this first one, I'm really excited about it because it is a story that I wasn't familiar with at all until you brought it to my attention, mm. Nick. And But it is the bread and butter of basically everything that I love as far as ancient history, ancient mysteries. The idea of a legendary king who may or may not have existed, most <laughs> likely never existed at all, right? Uh, but just an epic story throughout the height of the Middle Ages during the struggles between Islam and Christianity and these kingdoms at various different, you know, vastly different points of uh, of Europe and Asia. And it, it's bizarre. So why don't you kind of like just ease us into the story of Prester John? Yes, the man with the most boring name and the most exciting history. <laughs> uh, just It really is. It really is kind John. of a dull name. Yeah, so Prester actually comes from the Greek the Greek. Presbuteros, which means elder, and it is the inspiration behind the English word priest. So his real name, to do a proper translation, is John the Priest, which is even more boring than Prester John. But this was this pseudo-mythical figure who existed in medieval European mythology, folklore, and also played an important role in their political, military um, ploys and gambits of that period, starting mm-hmm. at the end of the first millennium and going right through until the 1700s, was the belief in Prester John, this priest king of a vast, incredibly powerful Eastern kingdom, the most powerful Christian empire on earth. And he often crops up in European folklore and in political discussions of the day when Christendom mm-hmm. as Europe was at that time, was facing an existential threat or coming to a point of crux where the history of this region could have gone one way or the other, Prester John would always raise his head and guide Christian Europe in one direction or the other, despite the fact this man, in his form as a Christian king of a vast Eastern Christian empire, probably never existed. Right. Yeah. And that and that is obviously the interest piece to me, because right off the bat, and you and I were talking about this right before we started recording, it struck me as almost like a King Arthur type figure, not to compare them as as individuals, but the idea of a person that may or may not have existed. Right. And that people so badly wanted to believe that this was a real figure, that this was a real kingdom hiding somewhere in the distant jungles of a far off land that no one had ever seen before. And this was going to be the bridge 
between European Christianity and and save them essentially from from exactly. the perils of Islam. I yeah. suppose, right? As as um, the various Muslim kingdoms and empire were on the rise towards the end of the first millennium, uh, Christianity in Europe felt incredibly threatened, and the idea that beyond this new enemy to Christianity that was the Muslim kingdoms. The fact that there was another, even more powerful Christian kingdom out there was a real salve or a balm for the Christians of Europe. So I think, it's fine, it's fine. We're not really that threatened because Prester John is out there and when we need him the most, he's going to show up and save the day. We know this for a fact because a whole bunch of people attest to his existence and he's even written letters to us. So I think it's really right. interesting to sort of approach the, the story of Prester John by working through the confirmed historical incidents that occurred over the course of the existence of this legendary figure. Who, as you say, is a lot like King Arthur. He's kind of this combination of all the ideals, mythical, legendary, and real, that Europeans wanted to see. So if King Arthur is a legendary right. king who embodies what it is to be a European king, and Prester John was like that, while still exotic, because he was in the East, he was often... Cathay or Ethiopia or the Indias, whatever those nebulous yes. terms meant to the Europeans of the period, he was this mythical king that did everything they wanted, but he was also real, and that meant he was a genuine aid when they needed him the most. Not that he ever quite was in the form they envisaged, but Prester John wasn't entirely fictional either, as we will get into over the course of this voyage. Yes, indeed. No, and I'm so excited to get into it, too. And that's, it's, you know, to me, one of the interest pieces from this is to, like, I mean, if I, to, to be a fly on the wall in the, during this time when, the, when these stories were circulating, you know what I mean? It's like, I often say that to myself when we're, for Into the Portal, for my other show, researching these things, where it's like, I kind of wish I could be around back then, aside from the fact that life would have been wretched and terrible for the most <laughs> part, right? But to just feel that sense of, like, that there was something out there, that there was mm -hmm. this distant thing, whether whether you're Christian or not, I, you know, other stories like this as well. But just the notion of like believing in that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, totally, bit of a side tangent here, but I was reading this interesting thing today. I, ho I hope this doesn't derail you from from where you're going, Nick. But this is what I like. I like to do this, so prepare for this on the historians. Mm -hmm. But of course, I, I learned of this interesting condition called aphantasia. Have you ever heard of this before? Never heard of aphantasia. So, it, so it, I, I hadn't either. And so it's a disorder where you can't actually picture any images in your head. You can't actually envision any imagery. So you think horse, you close your eyes, you can't see anything. Mm. And for me, that's bizarre because every as soon as you brought this story to me, I am closing my eyes and I was picturing like what the people during the Middle Ages must have been picturing, like this like hanging gardens of Babylon-esque Christian kingdom hiding out in like the warm tropical lands that were like the stark opposite of like the British Isles basically exactly uh, and the rest of Europe uh, so sorry that was a bit of a side tangent there I feel like it's th this the, the notion of oh man I, I, I kind of wish I could go back in time we've yeah. we, I, sorry I'm one on, day, I'm on, one I'm, day I'm we'll have a time around. machine um, or maybe we already do have a time machine that's a discussion for another <laughs> another episode but yes. I do agree it's sort of there is a time when the world was not as known as it is now I don't pretend we do yeah. know the world in its entirety yet but there was a time when so much less was known and you really could entertain the notion that these vast kingdoms that now with historical hindsight we know were really impossible in the way they're envisaged but you really could believe they could be out there right so let's dive into and I'm going to do a real crunchy analysis of the timeline 
and interject, uh, call me out or ask questions as I plow through nearly a thousand years worth of history surrounding Prester John. <laughs> so the way I see this, the way I see the story is it breaks up into chapters almost. You've got the origins of Prester John, then his incredible letter known as the Epistola, which changed the face of Europe in many ways. Then you have the Mongol mm -hmm. Empire, and then you have Ethiopia of the Three Indias. And that's where our voyage will conclude. But to start with, Prester John represented a kingdom of Christians east of Islam. Uh, and there was precedent for this. There was precedent for Christians existing in Central and Far Eastern Asia. St. Thomas, the Apostle of Christ, had embarked on a proselytizing mission to India in 52 AD. And he'd actually arrived in Kerala district on, on the West Indian coast and established seven churches before he was martyred in AD 72. So he mm. actually had gone out there and established what were known as the St. Thomas Christians, a sect of, as they were called at the time, Nestorian Christians, which means Eastern Christians. It's a different sect from the Catholics of Europe. Uh, which at that time, in medieval Europe, those were really the only Christians evident in Europe were the Catholics. But you have Nestorians off in the East, which have a slightly different interpretation of, um, of Christ's teachings. But they did exist out right. there. So among the Jewish population of Kerala, we see the first St. Thomas Christians appear very shortly after the crucifixion of Christ. And then the Nestorians accomplished successful conversions across Central Asia as well, including tribes of Mongols and Turks very early on. Uh, for example, around about the first millennium, about 1000 AD, over 200,000 of the Karaite Turco-Mongol Confederation converted to Nestorianism. And I mention the Karaites in specific now because they will become relevant later in this adventure. So they lived in the Altai region of Siberia and Mongolia, and many Karite rulers for hundreds of years afterwards maintained Christian first names, names that would seem totally prosaic in Europe. So you have these early Turco-Mongolic tribal clan leaders with European names, even before the legend of Prester John gets started. So there's already the roots of this myth being laid out there. And it wasn't just the Karites. There was also the Naiman and the Ongid tribes as well. So there are a lot of Central Asian tribes of what we would imagine to be sort of what later become like Mongolian horse warriors who were all Christian, but not Christians as were understood by the Europeans. <clears throat> Which is strange. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I find because, you know, we've, I, yeah, I haven't delved into that very much and the idea of it being almost like, because this is so early after the death of Christ. Right? Really early So on, this is yes. almost like, this is when people are still formulating like what the hell the religion is like pun intended, I guess me saying that. Um, so, I mean, what, I mean, I don't want to derail you again, but like, it's just crazy that it was so almost so easy that it like that, that, that there were these, these factions in the East that just took to this. I guess it was just, it, it just made sense to people. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, you, have, you get cases that, you know, sometimes religions are forced on people effectively by the sword and forced conversion. But in other cases, People come across Christianity and other religions as well, new religions, and sort of say, hey, this is actually like, I like this idea of an afterlife. And they just adopt it quite willingly. And in the case of the, um, of the Kerites, their chief, whose name I forget, at a, in about 1000 AD, was lost in a blizzard and had a vision of a saint who said, if you convert to Christ, I will save you from this blizzard. And he survived the blizzard, returned to his clan and said, 
I'm going to send away to Baghdad, which at that point was the nearest sort of Christian center. I'm going to send away to Baghdad and have a bunch of priests uh, come and talk to me about Christ's teachings. But when a leader of a tribe turns to a certain religion, just like with kings and queens in Europe, the whole tribe often becomes that same religion as well, just de facto. So if a chief becomes a new religion, the tribe becomes a new religion. And that just sticks. And it is interesting, too, because Nestorianism, though it was kind of admired by European Christians, had actually been outlawed by the Church of Constantinople since the Third Ecumenical Council in 431 AD. So it was an illegal form of Christianity. But with the rise of Islam later on in the first millennium, these illegal Christians became a lot more tempting as allies than the new threat to the Holy Land that was the Muslim armies. So it was... Yeah, no, you guys are cool. You guys are cool. It's all good. <laughs> so I, said, I know we outlawed you, but now these guys are here, so just, just forget that. Actually, you know, it's fine. We're friends now. There was already a president set in the near and far east for there being Christian communities. Different Christians to Europeans, but Christian communities nonetheless. But these were still just rumors and stories. People had very limited contact with Nestorians other than meeting pilgrims from the east uh, when people were all gathering to make pilgrimage to the Holy Land and to Jerusalem. But the legend truly begins and Jerusalem will become very important in this story in the 12th century when Prester John as a named entity comes into the fore. So in the 12th century, there were two visits, allegedly, that start the story. There is an Indian archbishop who visits Constantinople to speak with the the, uh, emperor of the Byzantine Empire, as well as an Indian patriarch called Patriarch John in 1122, who visits Pope Calixtus II. Now, both of them... Um, that's how I say the name. And if I didn't, I apologize to this Pope. He can haunt me. Um, and both these ambassadors claim to come from the St. Thomas Christians. And Patriarch John, in particular, in 1122, told of a fabulous, almost Eden, Edenic kingdom somewhere in India with rivers that flew from paradise, specifically a river called the Faison. You know, many incense-bearing trees, lots of wonderful fruits. And he told a very fabulous tale. So the story goes... And this is the first sort of official contact that people in Central Europe are starting to have with the Nestorian Christians of India. But the story, the legend really begins when a man by the name of Hugh of Jabala, then known as Gibel, which was a a crusader state in modern Syria, then part of the Holy Land, visited uh, the Pope. Which Pope was this one? Pope Eugene II in 1145 and this meeting between Pope Eugene and Hugh of Jabala was recorded in the Chronicon by German chronicler Otto of Freisingen and that's a lot of really difficult names that really tied me up here the Chronicon despite sounding like it's got you know a guide to forbidden gods I think is really just a sort of an, a yearly annual that people are keeping but he describes Hugh of Jabala visiting the Pope in the court of Uiterbo in Italy. And Hugh of Jabala had come with a very disparate message because the crusader state of Edessa had just fallen to the to Imad al-Din Zengi, who was an Uyghur's Turk and founder of the Zengi dynasty. So this is the first crusade which had involved Christians 
setting off to the Holy Land to liberate Jerusalem and the surrounding area from the rising Muslim forces, it had been a success. And now there were these Crusader kingdoms, which were sort of Europeans who sort of ruled over a nicely cut up part of the Holy Land, which had subjects who were both Jewish, Christian, Muslim under their authority. But these were the Crusader states that existed as a buffer around Jerusalem, which was, of course, the Holy Land that was so important to all the religions in this region. And Edessa had fallen after a long siege to the Oghuz Turks, who were a form of the Seljuks coming in from the east. And this was, once again, Islamic power was on the rise and they were starting to threaten the Holy Land once more. So Hugh of Jabala had gone to meet with the Pope and ask for a second crusade to effectively redouble the defences of the Crusader states to protect the Holy Land from the resuscitated threat that was Islam. And in the presence of the Pope, Hugh of Jabala, who had obviously come with a very, very dire news that uh, Edessa had fallen to the Turks, presented also a very happy story too, so not all was lost, in which he said there was a man called Prester John, a priest king of the East, who had, not many years ago, regained the ancient Persian city of Ekdabatana in modern-day West Iran from the Samiyad brother kings of the Medes and Persia. So Prester John, leading a vast host of a Christian army bearing crucifixes before them, had, after conquering this Persian city on the eastern flank of what was the sort of Islamic world, had then set out to redouble the defences around Jerusalem. But upon reaching the Tigris, which was flooding during the season, had been unable to cross, and though they had tried to find a way across where the river was frozen, had been unsuccessful and ultimately turned back home again. This was the first mention as well of Prester John's wealth, because he carried with him a scepter made entirely out of emerald. And as Hugh of Jabali got more excited in this story, he went on to say that Prester John was descended from the three Magi, who had, of course, been attendant at the birth of Christ. And that was one of the reasons why Prester John wanted to go to Jerusalem, was to pay respect to the, the king of kings that his ancestors had attended the birth of. Okay, there's a lot to unpack and there. That's a lot. That, that's a lot to unpack. This is the first Prester John. <laughs> that's story. And that, I'll go over to you. Yes, now. and because that is because that is just water. yes. Take take a sip of water because that was a that's a lot. That's that's so much, and it's obviously tied into so many things that are both familiar and unfamiliar. I'm sure to people listening, especially the idea of uh, essentially the three wise men, right, and and the origin story mm, of Christ, yes. and and how there may or may not be a, a tie to that. And it is interesting, right, because it was supposed to be yeah, these three wise men from the east following a star that you know everyone knows the story from Sunday school, right? And oh, of course. But we don't know, but we don't have the actual, you know, this it was this guy, this guy and this guy. So who is the descendants of <laughs> of these three guys? I think that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. Well, I read a really interesting theory during my deep dive into this which said that the magi is is the name that was given historically to Zoroastrian astronomers uh, and scientists. Now, they, Zostrians, which come out of Persia, it's one of the world's oldest religions, about 3,000 years old. It is a monotheistic religion in which people believe in the god Ahura Mazda, whose teachings and policies are very similar to later teachings and policies of, um, 
of Christians and Muslims both. So it's mm -hmm. thought that maybe the early Zostrian religion inspired these later religions. But it's been speculated that the Magi were Zostrian astronomers, which would explain how they could follow ah, the star to guide them. Indeed. And it also ties in the sort of monotheistic East that still respects Christianity. Yes. And the other thing that Hugh said in his excited story was that all the king, all the land ruled by the Magi, this um, these ambiguous people, all the land ruled by the Magi was now ruled by Prester John. So it's sort of the idea, this is where you start, get this idea that there is this sympathetic old Eastern Empire ruled by a Christian, descended from monotheists of a different religion who even then respected Christianity. So this right. is this kind of origin story that ties Prester John and the origins of Christ in together. Right, yes. Now, before we even continue on with the with more of the story here, I do want to just interject this because for me, always wanting to, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like I'm not even, like I, you know, I was brought up Catholic or whatever, but I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm not like, mm. a, you know, whatever. Um, but it's interesting, the idea of just like, you know, trying to, what could there have been an actual like nugget of this? I know that's what we're talking about, but like when we talk about the translation or the uh, the writings from Otto, oh my God, I'm going to butcher this. What was that guy's name? The German Otto Freising of yeah Freisingen. Freisingen, some something along those lines. Also von Freising. <laughs> right. Yeah. Could could there have been? an actual remnant from those St. Thomas Christians that we mentioned off the top that was just basically like an over-exaggeration, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like the idea that there could have been an actual Prester John type thing, but it was just a flat-out over-exaggeration. Like, you know, like in classic, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, but where it's like, oh, you know, in the ancient writings, it's like this massive palace with this huge, massive mm. thing. And then the archaeology, and then and someone ends up finding it, and it's like, oh, this is kind of lackluster. This is actually quite small. Like yeah. this isn't what what it sounded like it was. Like, it's, it's cool in respect to itself, but it is not this gilded palace of legend. I think it's true. I mean, the St. Thomas Christians of India, I think, laid the seeds of what became Prester John. They were a Christian community living in India, which, incidentally, Hugh of Jabala explained that the lands of the Magi included India. So this is the first description as well of Prester John being an Indian Christian. King. Right. India was an ambiguous term at the time, but the physical continent of India had a Christian presence since the earliest days of Christianity, really. And so this, re and the fact that there is apparently an archbishop and a patriarch, both from the St. Thomas Christians who visited the Pope and the Emperor of Byzantium only about 20 years before Hugh of Jabala showed up with the story, there really does seem that the St. Thomas Christians were very likely a real functioning entity of Christians right. living within India. And then their story got tied in with the movements. And we're going to get to this almost immediately but with the movements of central Asian tribal groups, warlords and clans uh, to form this idea of this vast, powerful empire of Prestigeon. Gotcha. Also, it's important to bear in mind that central Asian tribes such as the Kerites had Christian names for their first names. So John was not an unheard of name for a Mongol warlord to have. Kerites were also Christian and St. Thomas Christians lived in India. So there's a lot of elements here that put paid 
to the theory that Professor John could be a real right. entity. They likely just weren't wielding, uh, I suppose, golden-laden and, and diamond-laden uh, swords and scepters and things like that. It sounds very King Solomon, you know, like the Christian, just like, oh, let's, oh, yeah, let's just yeah. let's slap a bunch of wealth on this guy. Oh, and his sept is made out of emeralds, yeah. and his throne is ivory, and... You know, he's got all this wealth that we desire, and the East had a lot of wealth. Europe was desperately trying to trade with the East all the time, and actually trade routes play a very significant part in the story of Prester John as well. First, the Silk Roads, we're going to get to that shortly, and also the spice trade with India. So the idea of like, getting the riches of the Orient, but there being a Christian king already there, you already had access to them, all played into this. So to now discuss... Prester John defeating the brother kings of the Medes and the Persians mm-hmm. uh, at the Battle of Ectopatana. There is a historical precedent for what happened. In 1141, the Karakitai Khanate under Yeludashi, sorry, Yeludashish, defeated the Seljuk Turks at the Battle of Katwan near Samarkand in Persia. The Seljuk Turks were at the time the most powerful Islamic force in the world. I recently was writing a book actually about um, Islamic archaeology, and I'm not talking about the Seljuks, I'm actually talking about the um, remains of the Abbasid dynasty that's further to the south. But the Seljuks were so powerful that every other Islamic uh, kingdom surrounding the Seljuks was influenced by them in their language, in their style of dress. They were the superpower of the Muslim world. And they received one of their most devastating blows from the Karakitai Khanate at the Battle of Katwan, which defeated the forces of Sultan Sanjar. And this was the first real time that Christian Europe had seen signs that this new threat of, of Islam could actually be halted or defeated and the interesting thing about the Kwarakitai Khanate is that they actually originated from China. They were a different group in China with a different name, which had been forced out by local other Turco-Mongolic groups and moved westwards. And they had brought with them Buddhism. So the Kwarakitai Khanate were Buddhist, which was also unheard of really at the time yeah. in Europe. But Buddhism is the belief in this benevolent man who really walked the earth who could perform miracles and when he died he was deified there's a lot of parallels between buddha and christ so when you hear about this mysterious force who have sacked the seljuks and you hear about their religion you could i mean uh, uh, an early medieval christian could be forgiven for thinking oh this is these are just more christians and the Kwarakit Khanate had many vassal states, including the nestorian christian turco-mongolic groups we've already mentioned so there's already a lot of Christians fighting on behalf of these Buddhists. And so this kind of becomes Prester John in the minds of, of, of Christian Europe. Right. Man, oh man, does it ever get complicated when we go, when, when we dip into the ancient past, just because there were so many different factions of, of just human beings, man. Just like, it's so, it's so much oh, yeah. easier now where you can like, just as far as religions, as far as obviously state borders and just who was who, um, because mm. this is, this is a, tr- this is a, tr- a true melting pot of like different, different things that are adding, oh, that yeah. are adding up to equal Prester John. And yeah, like a time when borders were completely non-existent. If you showed up in a new territory and didn't respect the local authority, right. you just, marched through there so people are just moving back and forth with complete freedom and completely new entities are showing up in well-known parts of the world and completely baffling the people who are already there and for the europeans the arrival of the kwarakitai 
you see them arrive and you think, I don't know what they are. I'm just going to, they're Christian. They're Christian. And that guy called John from India showed up 20 years ago. So it's probably all the same thing. Thanks, Hugh of Jabala. Anyway, yes, Hugh of Jabala yes. was successful by telling this story. Because the other thing is Hugh of Jabala kind of says, hey, you know, like, not all is lost because, you know, while Jerusalem is threatened by the Seljuks, they've also recently suffered a massive defeat on their on their rear. But because Prester John can't cross the Tigris, Christian kingdoms can't sit back and be complacent. They need to rally troops for a second crusade. Ah. So it served as a nice bit of propaganda to persuade people to lead the second crusade. Right. Which is exactly what happened, and a great deal of people were killed subsequently. Yeah, the Crusades were, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't like an ideal time to be alive, you know? No. Yeah, we, we were talking about, like, I wish we could travel back in time. I wish we could, but I don't want to get caught up in no. so many of the things that were happening no. during the Crusades. And this now brings us to Chapter 2, The Letter of Prester John. Yes. And this is... This is the document that cements this guy into the mindset of Europe. He becomes real through this letter, also known as the Epistola. Yeah. And it was delivered. Sorry. I, yes. I, I just wanted to say, too, because like this, so, and, and it was about 20 years after the original account from uh, Otto of, of Freight. Oh, my God. Yeah. Otto. I'm just going to say Otto. Um, yeah, Otto. And yeah. so it's, it's two decades of people kind of like getting this pent up you know, desire for more evidence, I guess, for Prester John, because th yeah. that is the other sort of side mystery of this. It's like Prester John is the mystery in and of himself. And then there is this, which you're about to tee up because we don't know who wrote these. No, no, we don't. So the letter arrives in 1165. It was, uh, it was delivered to the Byzantine emperor, Manuel I, Comenus, but also delivered to various European princes, including the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa. And it was translated, it was embellished, it was added to, that's the other right. thing. People would translate it and put their own little details in there as well. Mm -hmm. And it became a driving force behind early European exploration of the world outside of Europe. Because this letter arrives from, allegedly from Prester John, who wrote, writes the most humble yet self-aggrandizing letter about how absolutely fabulous his kingdom is. It's the biggest kingdom in the world. He doesn't even know how far east it goes. There are rivers of diamonds. There are seas with no water that still have fish living in them. He, he, he lists all his people. He says, I have many Christian vassals, but many pagan vassals too. The lost tribes of Israel are my vassals as well. Um, there is a part of my empire, which is the Garden of Eden. And there is also a fountain of youth. The fountain of youth, weirdly, is below Mount Olympus, which is in Greece. So that's a little bit of a strange detail because people knew where Greece was at this point. I mean, it was part of the Byzantine Empire at that point. So it's weird that he said Mount Olympus was part of his empire. Yeah. He goes on, he's like, oh, the cannibal tribes of the Cog and Magog, who feature in the um, in descriptions of the Apocalypse in the um, Book of Revelations as well. They're also my loyal subjects, and so are satyrs, fawns, people with faces on their chests, women with the heads of dogs, men with the heads of dogs, Amazons, archers, the whole thing. Everything you can imagine from medieval fantasy fable 
It's all part of his incredibly wealthy. Family. He's got a little bit of everything in in the Prester John Club. There, he's basically yeah, he's he's included essentially the, the, all the heavy hitters in in Christian mythology and and, and legend, especially exactly. the Lost Tribes being one of the big ones for me. Like hearing oh, you say yeah. that, because for me, like <clears throat> this whole time we've been going through so far, and it, ha- it hasn't been that long. We're still getting into some real meat of this, but I've been trying to think of what could be the other connection to the East, and I was reminded of the Lost Tribes and sort of of that exodus and even going back you know as far as to king solomon and the relationship with queen sheba in ethiopia and what oh, sort yeah. of connection there may have been to the east back then you know obviously thousands of years before this the advent of prester john but mm. what h- how that might tie in as well so i'm, I'm loving where this is going oh. All the stories are there, sort of, all these elements that come into play later on, all the historical present we will discuss, it really does tie into mythology, legend, and biblical, and um, Quranic, and like the canon of the Torah yes. as well, the written Torah. Yes. All these all these stories, they all, all these different faiths, Preston John has a bit of all of it. I mean, he's actually on very good terms with the pagans under his authority as well. Yeah. Though he is a he is a Christian king, but unlike the Christians of Europe, he actually gets on pretty well with non Christians as well. They all live in this really harmonious empire of his, where there is no hunger or disease. Everyone, if they fast for three days and drink from the waters of Olympus, they live at the age of thirty-two forever. Thirty-two was the prime age, and if you drink from the fountain of youth, you will live as a thirty-two-year-old the rest of your Damn, life. Damn, that sounds great. And Sounds pretty awesome, yeah. And then there's there's rivers. And the other thing is the rivers are rivers that were known by geographers of the medieval world to exist in India. Because the other thing is, he keeps reiterating, he is the king of India. But India is all these things that are beyond India, too. Right. Yeah. And ever since these letters were distributed, people have been discussing where did it all come from? Like, who wrote this? And there's been a lot of textual analysis. And there is a book written during the time of the Roman Empire called The Romance of Alexander, which talked of Alexander the Great's conquests as far as India, which is what he did, uh, you know, in in the Hellenistic era, thousands of years earlier, well, a thousand or so years earlier. But The Romance of Alexander also has a lot of fantastical elements, including people with dog heads, Alexander briefly marries an Amazon queen. So all these other kind of stories all feature in there. So it's thought that whoever wrote the letter, if it wasn't Prester John, let's just say it it could have been Prester John, in which case all of it's real. But if it wasn't Prester John who wrote the letter, it's suspected of someone who's familiar with a lot of very popular medieval texts, because also the travels of St. Thomas feature heavily too. In fact, Prester John says that he often goes to pay homage to the sepulcher within his empire where the remains of St. Thomas are kept, which, again, they were kept in Kerala in India. Yes. So this is this Indian connection and the Christian, the St. Thomas Christians that keep coming up time and again. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of discussion as to who could have written it. And there's a few theories, and I could expand on those in a moment, but before I do, who do, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's like, I mean, it's obviously like, follow, follow the money, right? Like, like, who had the most vested interest as an individual to, mm. to write this? And, but what I'm most interested by is kind of like going back to what you said a, a few minutes ago, this idea of it being embellished and embellished and embellished as it's translated yeah. and changed. And I so badly would want to to uh you know like to juxtapose the the original the original source to the final to the to to the final (laughs) translation because i wonder how 
much more raw it could have been, how, how much more lacking in, in fantasy it may have been. And that's kind of like what I keep coming back to throughout this episode so far is like, what, what nugget of truth is there in this where there maybe is? Because like, exactly. I'm still picturing like ancient ruins with crosses on it hiding out in the jungle somewhere that people haven't discovered yet in the, in the mountains of, of, of the Hindu Mount, Kush mountains or something, right? Who knows? Yes, and the thing is that is entirely plausible because there were Christian populations living out there. So you could get these very early Christian ruins out there that could have at some point sparked the myth that became the man that became Prester John. So yeah, so as far as about following the money, the interesting thing, I read a, I read a great thing when I was reading, the, I was reading various versions of the lesser of Prester John. And one of the versions said, you know, we've tried to like break this down into the, as close to the original as we can get and where we think it's been embellished. Normally the embellishments were adding a few extra carbuncles and emeralds. Most of the embe embellishments were just adding more to the wealth of Prester John. Uh, but mm -hmm. there is a very interesting through line in the lesser. Firstly, he's really snide about the Byzantine Empire yes. and the Emperor of Constantinople. And it is, he sort of refers to, he firstly refers, he's, he speaks very formally to the Emperor, whose name was Manuel I Comenius. He speaks very formally to Manuel I. Right. But he does sort of say, we exalt you, Emperor of the Romans, which is not the term, the, the, the Emperor of Byzantium was King of the Greeks. He was not King of the Romans. So this is already sort of like a little like, a slight jab almost because there was a schism between Rome, which is once the seat of the Western Roman Empire and Byzantium, which is had once been the Eastern Roman Empire. They've kind of like split off into two different Christian polities at this point. Often it was Byzantium asking Rome to back them up against Muslim armies that caused the Crusades, which really annoyed a lot of Europeans because they felt obliged to do so because Byzantium was a Christian empire like theirs. But it was so far east, it really had nothing to do with France yeah. or Germany or England, which is kind of where the center of power was moving. So this letter was really snide. And actually, at one point, it sort of says, you, Emperor, uh, Emperor Manuel, you know, your people call you Manuel, but you're only a man. I'm only a man, and I call myself Prester, which literally means priest. It's a very humble title. He's like, and yet I am king of kings, ruler of the world, and I'm more humble than you, Emperor Manuel. So it's this weird dig at yeah. Constantinople. Yeah. So there's a lot of theories here that this could have actually originated as a propaganda ploy coming from Western mm. Europe. Maybe it was organized by Roman priests. Uh, this is like Western Catholic priests trying to sort of undermine the authority of Byzantium and also extol the benefits of having a priestly government. Of course, the emperor of Byzantium was not himself leader of the church. Now, Prester John, as leader of the of India, apparently, was also head of the church and state. And so this is kind of thinking, hey, you know, let the church rule the state. That's not such a bad idea. It's also been uh, suggested this was all propaganda, trying to stoke people's passions up to lead a third crusade. But the other interesting thing is that a textual analysis reveals that the, that the whole paperwork was authored um, possibly by Jewish authors mm. who lived in northern Italy or Languedoc region, and reading about the possibility the whole thing was written by Jewish authors, I found very interesting yeah. because the book does encourage European Christians to be humble. It reminds them that they will all die, that all Christians are corruptible, and there will always be something bigger than them. In this case, it is Prester John. 
who lives in harmony with non-Christians. Mm-hmm. And there's this theory that just due to the way it was written, it quite possibly was written by Jewish scholars living in Europe. And just it's important to bear in mind that in 1096, during the First Crusade, European crusaders perpetrated what was known as the Rhineland Massacres, where on their way to the Holy Land, they rode through Jewish communities in France and Germany and slaughtered countless thousands of Jews. Because at the time, Jews were perceived as much the enemy as Islam. And the argument a lot of crusaders use is, why are we going to all this trouble to go to Jerusalem when there are non-believers right here at home for us to slaughter? And it's a disgusting mentality. But when this letter arrives in 1127, you know, the the persecution of the Jewish people during the Rhineland massacres was still quite prescient. So possibly writing a letter allegedly from an all-powerful Christian that reminds all Christians to check themselves may have been a driving force behind the authoring of this letter. That's my theory. I haven't seen that online. That's something I came to yeah. uh, while I was doing the research for this. Yeah, no, that's 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 an interesting. That's a definitely an interesting thing to add to it. I I love how like well I don't love. I mean, obviously, what we're talking about in this exact instance is so so dark. But every time anyone mm. mentions anything like that, I'm always just reminded of uh, of uh, the life of Brian and uh, like oh like the guy getting yeah. stoned to death, and it's like Jesus. Times times were rough. It's uh, yeah no it's times were rough. Yeah, times were awful. It was. I mean, I, I read I read online that the Rhineland massacres were really the start of the idea that it was good to persecute persecute Jews, mm-hmm. which continued throughout history. And I'm not going to say a climax in the Holocaust because it continues today yeah. as well. I mean, anti-Semitism is still rife, mm-hmm. but the Rhineland massacres were the were sort of the the origin of this disgusting train of thought that has persisted through till today. Mm-hmm. So it was a really bad time, and maybe by writing this letter ostensibly from an all-powerful Christian that reminded all the European Christians to stop being dicks and that they're not the most incredible people on earth might have been sort of, might have been genuinely uh, done by Jewish authors uh, as textual analysis suggests. So sort of, so, so the idea there might also is kind of like, there's that aspect of it, but then there's also the aspect of it that's talking about how great Prester John is, you know, like has all this wealth, is able to get along with everyone. So it's almost kind of like talking it up in the sense that like, it's, it's giving, it's giving Christians what they want to hear, but then also sort of like putting them in their place at the same time. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, it's it's constructive criticism almost. I mean, go. yes, yeah, yeah. Sure, the European Christian, yeah, the European Christians decided to perpetrate the Rhineland massacres, and in response, the Jewish population say, "We're not going to behave like you did. Yeah. We're going to write you a letter that says, hey, being Christians great, being nice to non-Christians is also great.' So it's like, it's really sort of like." Uh, was it turning the other cheek, being the better person in this in this war between faiths, in a sense? Um, and I think it's quite clever because, as you say, so like Christians were very open to the idea of Prester John. They really embraced him mm-hmm. because he supported them while also reminding them to be humble. So it's a really good way, almost, to attempt to dial back rabid christian arrogance in a sense during this early period during the crusades right and that makes that makes a lot of sense because the letters in and of themselves 
like they don't have any like there's no direct requests uh, like to say hey come come see me come meet me over here or or you know I've got this vast I've got this vast kingdom here and it's massive and it's great but you guys need to try to be do better over here you know what I mean or like something like there's yeah, like, yeah. there's some sort of like direction or action or drawing people out to the east to try to find him or something like that like everyone just did that on their own they were all just like that, that was their own volition yeah. Uh, and this actually leads to an interesting thing. So Pope Alexander in 1127, which was... Nope, he did that later. I'm getting confused with my, with my numbers. No worries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's so many dates. But I'm so confused. But Pope Alexander II sent a letter to Prester John, not long after this, this letter from Prester John arrived in Europe, mm-hmm. sort of saying he would like to form a, an official political alliance with Prester John. And this was all started because the Pope's personal physician, Philip, no last name given, was on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and met a pilgrim from the East who claimed to represent Prester John's kingdom and said that the Prester John, though he was a Nestorian kingdom, um, a Nestorian king, was very open to the idea of adopting Roman Christianity. He wanted to build a temple in Rome and an altar in Jerusalem. And the Pope was delighted by this. He sort of thought, oh my goodness, like, we can get this Nestorian Christian with this huge army and all his wealth on our side and make him a Christian on our terms. And at this point, Pope Alexander II was actually fighting quite a lot with the Holy Roman Emperor. So to get Prester John on his side had a political benefit. So he sent Philip back to the East with a letter to open up communications with Prester John. And Philip is never heard from again. That's the end of that story. <laughs> yeah. No more Philip. He was off. They, t- they took care. Someone took care of Philip. Someone took care of Philip, and Philip went off to Central Asia with a letter to Prester John saying, hey, this is the Pope. We'd love to be friends. Thanks for your letter. Here's a letter of my own. And I feel like there's a Far Side comic in there somewhere where I can just picture some guy with just holding a letter. He's trying to find Prester John, and he just vanishes. It's like it's like Percy Fawcett. Wanders off just gone. <laughs> He is. He's just like the deserts of Mesopotamia and the steppe of Central Asia. Just one doctor called Philip. Like, Presta. Special. I'm loving all these like telegram. these like modern names too, right? It's like Philip. We got Hugh. We got. I mean, obviously John's Philip. biblical, so it's common. But yeah, it's hilarious. Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. yeah. This is sort of the by this point, Presta John. He was real right. in the eyes of the Europeans. Mm-hmm. He absolutely existed. I mean, popes were writing letters to him. He was writing letters right back to them, whether he was or wasn't. But you know, right. Presta John was this real entity somewhere beyond the wall of the various Muslim empires. Right. And then we enter the next chapter, which a little bit of the, would you, should we get to the next chapter or do you have anything to round out the letter? Honestly, I, I've got, I, I'll come back to that at the end. I think we should dive into the next chapter. Really? Yeah. So I think we're going to do the chapters and then we'll, then we'll boil this down on a long and lengthy discussion. So the next <laughs> chapter I've entitled rather in a spoiler fashion, it's called The Mongols. Mm. So we now jump forward to 1221, when the Fifth Crusade ends in a complete disaster. The Crusaders were slaughtered by the Abuya dynasty outside of Cairo, and they barely managed to make it back to Europe alive. And by this point, Europeans were kind of saying, where is the point in Crusades? Because Jerusalem was at this point at the very edge of confirmed Christian territory. Beyond Jerusalem were all the Islamic empires, Prester John's somewhere out there, but we haven't seen him for years. And 
every time they take back Jerusalem, every time they take back the Crusader kingdoms at a great cost of men and money coming out of Europe, the local Muslim groups rise up again and take it right back again. Yeah. And this time they decided the best way for them to take Jerusalem was to first destroy the Aboyids in Egypt. They went down to Egypt, the Aboyids wiped them out, and stragglers made their way back to Europe. So at this point, Europeans are sort of thinking, we need to just quit doing this. But Jacques de Utre, Bishop of Accra, and Accra, important to mention, was another crusader kingdom. So he had a vested interest in a prolonged Christian uh, interest in the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. He arrived in Europe with very happy news, despite the fact the entire army just got wiped out on the shores of the Nile. He says that King David of India, the son or the grandson, unclear, of Prester John is currently marching on the Saracens. He's already conquered Persia and he is now advancing on Baghdad. Like his grandfather before him, who defeated the Seljuks at Ectapatana. Now, this is going back to Hugh's story, Hugh of Jabala, who spoke about Preston John defeating the Seljuks at Ectapatana. Like his grandfather before him, this King David, grandson of Preston John, hopes to reconquer the Holy Land. One of David's armies is even now within only 15 days' march of Antioch, which is a very significant crusader state. And this, well, you know, this was probably an attempt by a very weak Jerusalem to resuscitate failing European interests in funding costly wars retaking the Holy Land, (laughs) which at this point had very little to do with European affairs. But this was the resuscitation of Prester John, no longer the myth, but now the man who was once again, or, or his descendants, were advancing with their vast crucifix bearing armies on the Holy Land once again. So this is this new chapter. And once you have once you have descendants to go off of too, like well now we're now we have multiple different figures that we're searching for to try to pinpoint the, the truth of the truth of the man, right? So that's exactly. that's fascinating. Of course they've recycled King David as obviously like I've already made reference to Solomon here and we're just recycling a mm. millennium over and over and over again <laughs> of all these all these things. Exactly. Yeah. I mean it's it's all these names that are so popular with Christians, but names that are inherently linked to the Holy Land and to mm-hmm, Asia. Mm-hmm. Now, King David is back, and King David is the son of Prester John, and he's defeated Persia completely. He's marching on Baghdad. The war is happening right now. As we're getting slaughtered at Cairo, other Christians are doing really well, so give Jerusalem more money and soldiers. And there was a historical precedent for this, but it wasn't quite like what Jacques de Utre had presented. No, not at all. And this... This is where we meet Genghis Khan, (laughs) forming the Mongol Empire at this point. Now, Genghis Khan is famous to all of us now, but this was the first time Genghis had ever appeared in the sort of cultural mindset of the Europeans. He had been off doing his own thing in Mongolia, unknown to the Europeans, but now he was actually, he was genuinely advancing on his way through all the various Muslim kingdoms and empires of Central and Western Asia, and for a moment, Genghis Khan was interpreted as Prester John. Genghis Khan was a Tengrist, which means he was a worshipping a monotheistic deity known as Tengri, the sky right. god. So once again, this is a case like with the <laughs> Quara Kitai, <laughs> like with the Quara Kaitai Khanate of uh, <clears throat> 1141. This was a case of Christians seeing a guy come out of the East 
who worships a single god and is thinking, well, maybe this is a case of them worshipping a Christian god. Right. Um, sort of failing to realise that civilizations beyond Islam had their own pantheons of gods completely. Now, Genghis was at first perceived to be the absolute enemy of the enemies of the Christian empire, and thus, though a pagan, the salvation of the Christi Christian world. But it sort of turned out he was a little bit more liberal than I think many Christians were counting on. He was actually very accepting of all faiths, so long as he controlled them. And he opened trade routes to the entire Middle East and Central Asia and to Europe, so long as everyone did what they were told within his empire, Genghis Khan and his Mongol successors were very understanding. Genghis Khan actually had a Nestorian concubine that was his favorite, and he had a court full of Muslim, Buddhist, Christians, and Jews, all giving him different religious advice to inform his political decisions. Right. But now that Genghis Khan had opened Central Asia, Europeans began to go eastwards along the Silk Road, and for many, they had an ulterior motive, not just to trade with the East, which due to the Islamic kingdoms had been closed off for so long, but also to look for Prester John, who was still definitely out there somewhere. He just had to be. He just had to be, right? I, I, I find mm. it pretty pretty hilarious, honestly, this image of, of Genghis Khan as as that figure, or or at least the maybe maybe what the, oh, yeah. the origin point of that figure, just because I'm picturing him in my head right now, and it is the stark opposite of what you would read in the letters, right? Like of this king. Yes. With the emerald sword and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it kinda of, I think when when people heard of, of Genghis Khan, they thought this guy is Prester John. Then they came to face to face with the Mongol Empire and went, oh, well, you know what? Mm. They're still really useful to us right now because they are preventing the Islamic world from expanding into Europe, but they're not quite the force of Christian good we'd been expecting. In fact, they're no. open to all religions and utterly barbaric. So it's a combination of things that <laughs> had kind of taken them all a little bit by surprise. But I'm going to... I'm going to go back now to the Kerites, who I mentioned at the very start of all yes. this, who was one of the earliest Central Asian Turco-Mongolic groups to adopt Christianity. So Genghis' foster father, Togrul Khan, who was leader of the Kerites, was a close ally to Genghis early on and was himself an Nestorian um, Christian. And so for uh, explorers and adventurers such as Marco Polo and various other famous figures who went east and lived in the court of the Khan, not just Genghis, but also his son and his grandson, Kublai Khan, who was hosting Marco Polo. The idea was now, Genghis Khan wasn't Prester John. He couldn't be. He's not even Christian. But Togrul Khan, that man had been Genghis Khan. Sorry, cut that. That man had been Prester John. Right, yes. So Prester John now stopped being this was a mythical entity. He became a real person, but a dead person by the time people were writing about him because Togrul Khan did not get on very well with the young Temujin. Temujin was the name of Genghis Khan before he created his, his empire. Togrul had raised young Genghis, but when Genghis started getting a little bit more powerful, then said, hey, why don't I marry my son to your daughter? Togrul said no, because he realized he was going to lose his influence over Genghis if he engaged in this marriage, and then invited Genghis to meet with him to talk about it, and then try to kill Genghis. And if history since then taught us anything, you don't try and betray Genghis Khan, yes. who then declared war on Togrul, defeated Togrul, then went to Togrul's brother, who had a daughter called Soghatani Beki, and married her 
to his son. And this daughter and his son, Tol Tolui, were to give rise to all the Khans who would later rule the Mongol Empire, such as Kublai Khan. So Genghis was able to get rid of Togrul Khan, the Nestorian Christian, take his niece, unite the two warring factions, while Togrul was ultimately murdered by another group of Nestorian Christians known as the Namians elsewhere after he <laughs> fled the throne. So this is the historical sort of interplay that had been taking place during the early foundation of the Mongol Empire. And Marco Polo, the crusader historian Jean de Jeanville, and Franciscan voyager Odoric of Pordenone all took this historical event and put their own spins on it. They incorporated Prester John into this. They all decided that Togrul Khan had been Prester John and that Prester John had been killed ultimately by Genghis Khan. So it's like, we weren't wrong guys. Prester John was real. He was this super Christian ruler, but then this uppity young rebel called Genghis showed up and Genghis was described as like a rebel and a traitor and various anecdotes who had risen up and killed off the good Christian King Togrul mm. and created the Mongol Empire. However, at the same time, the Mongols were a really important ally for the Christians to have. So at this point, we start to see almost like people start telling stories of how Prester John was flawed. He was arrogant or proud or indulged in practices that were non-Christian to almost justify right. yeah. Genghis Khan killing Prester John. Yeah, I, and that totally makes sense. And for me here, when I'm thinking, okay, now there's this man we can pinpoint here associated with the Mongolian Empire. And I'm thinking like on a map, like I'm, I'm trying to map this out in my mind here where it's like, okay, well, mm. how, how far east did we think the actual court of Prester John went to? You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, so this is one puzzle piece then. Uh, as far as like going mm. back to the, the idea I, I set off the top of like, you know, King, King Arthur's an amalgamation as an example of various different like Roman generals, um, Oh my gosh, I haven't covered I haven't covered mm. that story for a while. But there's you know there's like five or six legitimate historical figures. Like for me, I'm seeing yeah. this as seeing this as the easiest option. Like this was easy for Marco Polo to be to to point to. And it's obviously awesome that we have this this famous historical figure in Marco Polo who did spend time there, making yeah. a reference to it. Exactly. I mean, a lot of these individuals, such as uh, I didn't mention them earlier, but William of Rubric lived actually with the son of Sorkatan of Becky, the niece of Togrul, allegedly Preston John, who was Monkai Khan, the father of Kublai Khan. And they all, they, and Marco Polo lived with Kublai Khan. So with each generation of Khan, you have European writers, explorers, and crusaders living with them. Mm -hmm. And they're all out there looking for Preston John. And each one of them is sort of trying like, now we can't see Prester John anywhere, but he has to be here. And Togrul Khan, being a Christian Mongol warlord of the Karaites, made the most sense, really. And the Karaites had been established as Christians for centuries at this point, right. too. So yeah. they had been able, they all kind of shoehorned in Prester John. And they, they played fast and loose with, loose with the historical details sure. of the actual civil war between Togrul and Cengiz. Uh, because they needed to somehow work Prester John in there. But they all kind of, at this point, were like, Prester John isn't so fantastical anymore. He's a flawed king, a Christian king, a powerful Christian king, but a flawed one who was ultimately ousted by a pagan, but very politically useful guy called Genghis Khan, who is now our ally. Right. Because it started to become in vogue to actually form alliances. I mean, you have examples of crusaders 
and Franks actually going to war alongside the Mongols against certain um, Muslim armies. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Spanish princesses being married to Mongol Khans. Europeans were like, you know what? These pagans aren't great, but we want to be their friends because they're the, our best bet against preserving Europe at this stage. And so Prester John starts becoming a little bit more flawed in the stories they tell now because he used to be this icon, this ideal of Christianity. But considering that it looks pretty like his stepson, his adopted son murdered him, and his adopted son is our best bet at surviving, Mm -hmm. let's change that narrative a little bit. Right. So that's the Mongol influence that comes into Prester John. Yeah, and... and I'm I'm having a difficult time in my head here segueing that to the the Portuguese expeditions because you know obviously yeah. there's there's that you know having that belief having this idea of like okay we can pinpoint something to to this descendant from or to, to the to the Mongol Empire and this just makes sense and as you said like I didn't realize that Spanish princesses were being married off to uh, that's interesting I didn't realize it was like to that extent that's, oh yeah yeah well because. Like the Golden Horde, which is one, like the Mongol Empire subsisted of kingdoms, each ruled over by brothers and sons of each other. And the Golden Horde was sort of pretty firmly established in Western Russia. So they're pretty close to Europe. So at that point, it's sort of like, hey, the best way we can prevent the Golden Horde from just leaving Russia and coming into Germany is if we just, or like, you know, and ultimately Spain, let's just start marrying into them, recognizing them as a legitimate empire and maybe that will prevent them from coming too far west. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is what you start to see, but I'm glad you mentioned the Portuguese because at about this time, it became very unpopular to lead crusades. Yes. Because they were so expensive. And at this point, Christianity was well-established enough in Western Europe that the Holy Land, though a nominal center of Christianity, no longer needed to be the physical center. For a while there, the Crusader kingdoms really wanted... Jerusalem to be the physical geographical center of the Christian world because it was through that central state of that kingdom that they would remain central in the minds of Christians but Christians had moved west and they no longer needed Jerusalem to be their center and crusades became pretty pointless Islamic countries Muslim kingdoms becoming more and more powerful expanding in their own right all over the Levant and North Africa and so a new age, and also in thanks to the Mongols, the, the threat of Muslim armies and the Saracens was lessened because the Mongols were there sort of keeping everyone in line and in check. So exploration of other areas became more popular. And expo- Portuguese exploration of Africa starts with some early attempted crusades against North African Islamic yes. countries. Yeah. And also, of course, southern Spain was at this point uh, a series of Muslim kingdoms like Al-Andalus as well. So uh, there were Muslims elsewhere. And now the Portuguese and the Spaniards started thinking, let's start crusading against these guys rather than going to the Holy Land. And then those crusades sort of gave rise to the Age of Exploration, which becomes the next big thing. You've got Henry the Navigator and you've got Vasco da Gama going off on expeditions to find the spice routes. Now that the Silk Roads had opened silk between Asia and Europe, now spice from India became the next big popular thing. And as attention of the Europeans shifted from the east to the south, from Asia to Africa, Prester John shifted as well, because Prester John had lost his luster as this 
fantastical king. Everyone sort of said, oh, he was probably just a Mongol Khan. But suddenly Africa was opened up as the next big place for Europeans to go. And Prester John came right back as this fantastical Christian king. And the whole story, the whole cycle starts over again. But now I'm African. Right, yeah. Which leads us to our final chapter, Ethiopia and the Three Indias. So now let me paint the picture of Africa for this final chapter of our story. So far, we have seen Europeans expanding their interest from the Holy Land into Asia, ultimately making contact as far as China by way of Kublai Khan and the Mongol Empire. But now we bring Africa into Mm -hmm. it. So let me paint a picture of a plateau in a region known to the Europeans as Abyssinia. And while Prester John may have never truly existed in the way the Christians imagined in Europe, a real Nestorian kingdom had been flourishing on this plateau south of Egypt since the mid-300s AD. During even the dying days of the Roman Empire, the first monarch of the Empire of Aksum in modern Ethiopia, well, he wasn't the first monarch, he was the first monarch to convert to Christianity within the Empire of Aksum, which was a vast, very powerful African empire on the eastern coast of Africa, south of the Nile and abutting the Red Sea and the Gulf of Yemen. And at a time when the Roman Empire was still fluxing between paganism and Christianity under Emperor Constantius II, Azana had created this possibly the first ever truly Christian state in the world in what would become Ethiopia. This was the Empire of Aksum, which by the 6th century AD ruled over a region that included modern-day Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and the Sudan. So a huge region. And it was was considered by the Sassanid prophet Mani to have been one of the great, four greatest powers on earth alongside Persia, Rome, and China. I mean, it's almost unheard of today. But it had at one point been one of the most powerful empires in the world, and it was the earliest, first, Christian empire on the planet in many ways. I mean, Rome was the other big Christian power and it still had a lot of pagans. So a lot of people worshiping Jupiter and Saturn. But Abyssinia just went right off the bat. They said, we're Christian now. And the whole place became Christian. And the the Empire of Aksum gave rise later to the Empire of Ethiopia, known as Abyssinia by the Europeans. And these kings traced their lineage, and you mentioned these guys before, back to Solomon and Queen Sheba. Through the Aksumite kings. So they claimed they had this real early indigenous uh, connection to the first precepts of Christianity. And, and and obviously there's so much more to tie to that. I mean, in, in the kingdom of Ethiopia, in Ethiopia today, that's where it's believed that that's the resting place of like the Ark of the Covenant, right? And they've got, exactly. they've got these artifacts that are like proof of like, yeah, like this, this the, the roots of that ancient Christian kingdom. Yeah, apparently in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, Tewahedo, or Te- yeah, Tewahedo in Aksum, that is where they keep the Ark of the Covenant right yeah. now under guard. That's crazy. I mean, it's, it's such an ancient Christian state. And Prester John had always been described as the ruler of India. But India was a vague concept in medieval Europe, and writers would often describe the three Indias without any knowledge really of what the three Indias were. It's why you have the West Indies and the search for the Indies. And the Indies pop up all over the place because for the medieval Europe, the Indies could be everywhere. And because people at this point, until Vasco da Gama found the sea route to India for the spice trade, 
no one really knew what the Indian Ocean looked like, and so Ethiopia was often lumped in as a part of India. Similarly, Ethiopia sometimes shows up in medieval texts as being in Central Asia as well. So Ethiopia and India kind of roam around, right. which is interesting, interesting because Prester John also shows up in both India and Ethiopia. So he kind of roams alongside this very nebulous series of regions and states. Well, that lines up then. I mean, that sort of makes sense. I mean, if we're, we're fluctuating in terms of where things are, then you know, naturally then the figure in, in the East will, will have that sort of ability to do the same. But do, would, exactly. would anyone use that in and of itself to say, well, maybe that makes it more true in some way? There's more truth to be discovered? Mm. Like, maybe... Well, even before people started talking about uh, Prester John being in the African Ethiopia, certain crusader poet writers who were living in the courts of the Khans, one even told a story, and I forget his name now, unfortunately, but he told a story that after Togrul Khan, also known as Prester John, had been defeated, he fled to Ethiopia, but not, not African Ethiopia, because African Ethiopia was still not really well known at this point, but just the concept of Ethiopia is where Prester John fled to. Right. Okay. So it's rather interesting that about 100 years later, with the actual kingdom of Ethiopia, Prester John is now there. So yeah. it's almost like he does move to reflect. I mean, people's consciousness shifts from Central Asia to Africa, but also Prester John in the mythology had moved even before that. Yeah. He kind of foresaw the shift in European interest. <laughs> That is sort of interesting. It's almost like he's this amalgamous, like, lifelike in a way, like, just like he's coming to life just by the description of him in a sense. Like, like you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's, he's, he's moving, moving well, he's, there. Presta John was inspiring people to explore Central Asia and now inspiring people to explore Africa. So even if he wasn't real, he was making real profound change within medieval Europe. Some of the most dramatic changes in Europe were precipitated by what people thought Presta John was doing. Yeah whether or not he was real. So it's kind of like he was almost given power and authority through storytelling that then influenced the way people told stories about him. This kind of cyclical thing where he wasn't alive yes. and yet had a life of his own. And that also makes me wonder too, because of this amount, this immense power in a way, like he, he really did change the, the course of history, even as a, a, oh, yeah. a, a, I'm air quoting here for everybody, like a fictitious character. But that makes me wonder like how easy it might have been, even going back to the idea of who wrote the letters and what the motivation might have been, yeah. how easy might it have been for someone uh, throughout this timeline that we're working with here, been able to to almost impersonate or pose as Prester John or as a descendant or as someone mm. helping, helping nudge that story along. So now we're moving towards Ethiopia. You know, you know what I mean? It's almost surprising. There are no accounts of anyone actually meeting someone like that. I mean, the closest we get is Philip physician of the exactly. Pope who met someone from the kingdom, but just a lowly pilgrim. You sort of think, you know, if you're a really good con man, you could show up and say, yes, I'm the nephew of Prester yeah. John. I suppose you would need to prove your vast wealth, maybe, to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, like I'm picturing in a sense, like in the earlier days of it, it might have made sense for you know an extremely weary traveler that stumbles into a you know completely different environment in one of the Indias that is like you know like 100 percent humidity. You are you don't even know what what's up or down at this point. And then someone yeah. says, "You are now in the kingdom of Prester John. Here's some." 
you know, huge stone structure. You only see one thing, and like that's enough for you to believe that you are it within the the walls of the kingdom. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, those kind of encounters, those kind of cons, say, could have occurred because, I mean, outside of the the examples I'm describing here, I mean, people were bumping into Prester John a lot, actually. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it because here in my notes I have written, by now there are many myths surrounding Prester John. Cleric Johannes Witt de Hesse from Utrecht claimed to have visited Prester John's kingdom while he was on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. While Sir John Mandeville, famous explorer and liar, unfortunately, <laughs> claims to have also visited the fanciful court of Presser John, which was full, good, and rich. So both these individuals had actually been to the court of Presser John on their way to Jerusalem from Europe, so I'm not quite sure how to get to India yeah. during that trip. Yeah. <laughs> but they had they claimed to have been to the court of Presser John and said it was everything like the letters had suggested. But these were still just sort of stories of, you know, one or two cases, a cleric here, a crusader there, and maybe weary people lost and in the wrong place had been duped into thinking they were in the court of Prester John as they struggled dehydratedly, dehydratedly <laughs> through Central Asia or somewhere in North Africa. However, in the year 1306, 30 ambassadors from Emperor Wedim Arad of Ethiopia arrived in Europe quite by surprise and these myths became real again. Ethiopia was vaguely known as being a, a Christian kingdom. It was thought to be very powerful, and much like Prester John, it was thought to actually one day rise up and actually take back Arabia from the Muslim kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Much like Prester John, it was assumed by the Christians in Europe that they would do this at some point, and they never really no. did. But because contact had been cut by the expansion of Muslim kingdoms across North Africa, Ethiopia was kind of ambiguous until these ambassadors arrived. Wadim, Wadim Arad had sent these 30 ambassadors to Europe, seeking the king of the Spains. Interesting that we have three Indias and two Spains in this story. <laughs> yeah. Presumably the Spains were the kingdom of, kingdoms of Castilla, Castilla and Aragon. But it's assumed that Wadim Arad had heard of the Spanish successes against Al-Andalus, the Muslim kingdom, in the south of Spain and sought to create an alliance between Western European Christians and Ethiopia to work together against the threat of Muslim kingdoms. Now, Wedim Arad was actually known for his clemency, generosity, and diplomacy. He had recently defeated Sheikh Abdu, Abu Abdallah through sheer generosity. Abu Abdallah had raised the tribes against Wedim Arad, and Wedim Arad had said, Hey, to the soldiers, I'll give you everything you want until you want nothing else if you promise to not go to war with me. And the army deserted Abu Abdallah en masse. And then he even said to Abu Abdallah, I'll also give you, Sheikh Abu Abdallah, everything you want as well, if you don't want to go to war with me. So Wadim Arad had this great approach, I feel, yeah. to dealing with enemies, because at the end, everyone is a human being and can be rational and dealt with. But also Wadim Arad, through his clemency and through his good relations with non-Christian groups, is a very Prester John-esque kind of yeah. figure. So these 30 envoys make their way to Europe. Whether they ever reach Spain is unknown, but they do go to Rome and Avignon and Genoa, or Genoa. And in Genoa, they speak to a local geographer, Giovanni da Carian. Carian. Nice, nice. And in this conversation with Giovanni da Cariano, they mention... That Prester John is the patriarch of the Ethiopian church. However, before I get any further, I have to say that 
author Jacobus Philippus Foresti de Bergamo is the one that says this conversation established the patriarch of the Ethiopian church being Prester John. Whether the Ethiopians said this themselves is unclear and in fact unlikely because about this time it becomes very commonplace to refer to the leader of Ethiopia as Prester John. It became decided that Prester John was the king of Ethiopia because Ethiopia kind of lived up in numerous ways. It lived up to the king of Prester John people have been envisaging since the letters came out over a hundred years earlier. Yeah. And many adventurers who went to Ethiopia, many missionaries, Jesuit priests, and other people who went out there to, I guess, convert the already converted Christians to a slightly more Catholic form of Christianity. While they were out there, they also wrote many fanciful stories where they talked about unicorns and rivers of milk and honey and all the kind of stuff that was in the original letter by Prester John himself. And so it became commonplace to just refer to the leaders of Ethiopia as Prester John. Meanwhile, Ethiopia was actively pursuing strategic marriages with Spain and was delving into negotiations with Portugal because by this point, the Portuguese were starting to colonize islands right mm -hmm. off the coast of Ethiopia. Yeah. And so the Ethiopians were probably getting a little nervous about Portuguese behavior and sort of thinking, hey, like, let's all be friends and make truces and pacts and work together as a team so you don't conquer and colonize us. And I have a couple of interesting examples here of how commonplace it was to just call Ethiopian kings Preston yeah, John. Yeah, let's hear it. So in 1441, ambassadors from Emperor Zara Jacob went to the Council of Florence to attend a, a, a meeting of Christian kingdoms to discuss policy. By this point, Ethiopia was well involved in the ongoings of European Christian kingdoms. And these ambassadors were incredibly confused because... The council prelates at this meeting insisted on calling Emperor Zara Jacob Prester John the entire time. <laughs> and the ambassadors kept sort of saying, we don't know what that name means. The name never features anywhere in the Solom Solomonic king lists. But the Europeans refused to acknowledge this and ignored them the entire time and insisted that Zara Jacob was called Prester John. And some writers who covered this, uh, this council even said later on that the name was being used as an honorific, but it had no indigenous roots. By 1520, Emperor Lina Dengel was referred to by Europeans as Prester John, and now it was just the fashion to call all European emperors Prester John. That just seems that way. Became just became the way. Just so it's almost like they're like, oh yeah, Prester John is in Ethiopia, and they met the Ethiopians and kind of went, yeah, this is this is Prester John. <laughs> the Ethiopians went, what? Like, no, 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 it's fine. We found him. We can stop searching. It, it, and it almost strikes me as like I, I don't even know. Maybe this is stupid, but it's almost like the 15th century equivalent of like calling someone the goat, like the greatest of all time, or something, right? It's like you could just apply it. Kind of it. Is, it's yeah. like okay, he's Prester John. This you're Prester John. Now you're Prester John. You are so Prester John right yeah. now. And the Ethiopians are like I, that name is not in our king list. It's like no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> We're just going to call your king Prester John because he's just so Prester, it's, it's John. He's but... so Prester, it's John. I feel like we're going to have to put that on a Historian's merch, on, on a t-shirt or I something, right? I think there should right? be a t-shirt that says that. You're so Prester, <laughs> it's John. But the fact... That's so... That's too good. But, like, the fact that it's not a name in this list of kingly names, the Sol Solomonic mm. list of kingly names, I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't... Know, I, didn't yeah. I didn't read that um, beforehand. And, like, 
that is a legitimate thing to, to tie back to. There's obviously so much myth and legend around King Solomon and whether or not yeah. his mines were real or, or what have you. But the temple's real and the, you know, the... There, there's there's a lot of like truth truth and nuggets there. There's some juicy nuggets there. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? There's a lot of great stuff. But it almost seems like as the Europeans had done with the Mongols beforehand, the legend of Prester John, they had found something that was going to be Prester John. Then all the Portuguese got there and went, "Oh, these are just normal guys." Right, right. And so, like Marco Polo had done, being like, "Oh, well, actually, it was Genghis Khan's stepdad who was Prester John." The Portuguese missionaries are like, oh, well, actually, all the kings in Ethiopia, they're just Prester Johns. That's just what we call them. And it's fine. It's fine. This is Prester John now. He's real. Everything we believed is accurate. Don't listen to what the Ethiopians say about their own kings and about their king lists, mm -hmm. which they can trace back to the empire of Aksum that existed a thousand years ago. Ignore them. It's right. fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And there's... Modern Ethiopian historians have even proven, by delving deeper into Ethiopian oral and written history, that Prester John was basically unheard of in Ethiopia until well after European contact had been established, as far as the writings of Ethiopia are concerned. Mm -hmm. But Prester John, by this point, just became the name we call Ethiopians, because they're kind of, it's almost like they won't always put the matter to bed. They're tired of always being proven yeah. wrong. So, you know what? Everyone's pressed to John. And we're kind of reaching at this point the conclusion. Yes. In the yeah. 17th century, many academics established that there was no indigenous connection between Prester John and Ethiopia. And in fact, Czech Franciscan friar Remedius Prutki asked Emperor Yasu II in 1751 about Prester John. And the emperor was apparently astonished, telling Remedius Prutski that the kings of Abyssinia have never been accustomed to call ourselves by this name. And so that's kind of where the story starts to wrap up. And I'll read my closing thoughts and then let's get into the discussion. Sounds good. Presser John's kingdom had once again shifted, moved out of fact and into myth once more. But his impact was now felt across the world. He had inspired European explorers, missionaries, scholars, treasure hunters, spies, warlords and traders to travel and explore, and they left their indelible mark and their scars across the surface of the planet and the peoples that populated it. Whether Prester John was real or not, he had opened up Fortress Europa to the world. He had spread Europeans across the world in search of him, and in doing so, Europeans had left their mark on Central Asia, Far Asia, and Africa, whether that was for better or for worse. Right. Did indeed change, change the course of history. It's, um, I can't believe I hadn't heard of this, heard of this before. We started looking into it for episode one of the Mistorians, and no, I'm absolutely ready to delve into some discussion theories, thoughts, and ideas. And I am going to rest my voice and drink some wine. Yes, please take a sip of wine. You've definitely been doing a lot of talking, uh, so far in this episode. I will try to match that. To me, <laughs> to, to me, you know, coming down to the end here, obviously, like, it's tough to make the argument that we are searching for a one one real legitimate historical figure, right? Like very much like the comparison to King Arthur, like I've said three or four times. But there's two interest pieces of this, like now coming down to the end. There's like a micro and macro version, the micro being the letter itself and the interest there, who wrote it and why. And before you kind of started to give me some of the, you know, the ideas of what could it have been, um, could it have been, 
just other, mm. fa- you know, at, whatever, members of the Christian faith throughout Western Europe? And was it just that? I had this idea before we got into the meat of that of like, could it have been almost a prank? Like, could could this have been, maybe, maybe it did come from the East, but it was almost someone like just pretending, like giving them a false sense of hope in a way. Like, you know, like, hey, yeah, there's a Christian king over here. Mm. Like, you can believe that even if it's complete <laughs> fabrication. It didn't really end up playing out that way for me as we broke this down because it was so, it did speak so favorably, you know, of what Prester John was trying to do and what he had accomplished. I thought, like, could this have legitimately come from the East, come from a non-Christian lens, but been like a prank, been like giving giving a false sense of hope in in a way, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, like Hmm. there's this vast Christian kingdom and it's like, no, it doesn't exist at all. Well, that's actually one of the theories I've seen purported is that it could have just been some bored literary academic types who thought, you know, people were talking about Prester John. He was apparently marching an army on Jerusalem when the Tigris stopped him. So people, I've heard a theory, it's like bored scholars or priests who thought, wouldn't this be funny if we just did this? I mean, this is, this is at a time when so many men were priests. I mean, now when you think of priests, you think of a specific type of person, but there was a time when everyone was involved in a priestly order in some way. And so the idea of a bunch of priests duping Christian Europe for fun, and I say priests because priests were normally the most educated people in in Europe and thus would have been the ones capable of being familiar with certain published works and being able to write. It is very likely that um, we know for a fact that there was a great many priests just like have fun. You know, they're not they're not priests in the way we conceive them now. I mean, there were yeah. every student who went to universities at one point was a priest somehow, while also right. being, you know, a diverse host of people. I mean, you've got Anglo-Saxon sure. priests who are all brewing their own specific type of beer, even though, you know, Christianity, certain Christians now would say that drinking is bad. And yet there have been Christian orders and, and sects of monks who have brewed all their own alcohol. It's kind of like Christianity changes over time. And also the idea that, a Christian wouldn't write this. I don't think is. I don't think it's true. Even if they're pulling a prank on the Christians of Europe, mm. it could still very easily have been written by a Christian, just as a con or a prank, as a hoax, just a little bit of fun that got well out of hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And to tweak that idea a little bit, like this would be slightly different. But the idea of you know, uh, a descendant or this, the aftermath, I guess, of the, the early St. Thomas Christians mm. expeditions into India and into the East and having a figure there potentially that was a little bit delusional potentially would be the word, mm. you know what I mean? Like writing this letter, like either legitimately thinking they were this figure or believing that they could create this kingdom somehow, some way. So they were going to write this letter and send it and almost accidentally you know, started off yeah. this, 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 this trend that changed Europe because they just wanted it to be true. You know what it I mean? It's like... possible. Although the thing is the textual analysis says the writing style is a very Western European uh, style of writing, but it could be someone who had come out of Europe and gone off on an expedition thinking, my name is John right. and I am going to create a crusader kingdom like no one's ever seen. Mm-hmm. And off he goes, a little delusional, <laughs> sends a letter and yeah. then yeah. vanishes. I mean, that's possible. It is possible it could have come right. from outside of Europe, uh, this letter. And if we are to believe that Prester John is someone, then the letter has to come out from, from outside of Europe. Although right. I'm personally not of the opinion that Prester John 
is a press to John. He's a lot of different people yeah. and also no people. Yes. But I don't think... Also, I mean, press to John must be incredibly old. Even before they start calling every Ethiopian emperor a press to John of himself. Even before you reach that point, press to John is pushing about 250, if you consider the first time he's mentioned through to Marco Polo. Well, hey, I mean, if he's got the Garden of Eden as an aspect of his kingdom, he clearly is. Oh, uh, he's got some some tricks to longevity, I suppose you You're might right. say. You're right. He probably drank from the Fountain of Youth at the foot of Mount Olympus, and there's been 32 ever since. I didn't think of that. That's that's the, that's the only thing that makes <clears throat> sense. I mean, sense. no, I I do totally agree with you that it's 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 clearly not a singular figure unless we are unless unless it is and ends up being one of these things we talked about where it is like a singular monk or a singular person mm. that's that's kind of putting putting on a ruse yeah. and in that sense it is a singular figure but it yeah. isn't the prester john that we are to believe it is the author was either a deluded single person or a small group of very clever people who either <laughs> right. because they want to teach christian europe a lesson or just for the fun of it wanted to mess with christian europe wrote this letter the other theories of course are that this was propaganda to encourage the third crusade or a Mm -hmm. letter to sort of undermine byzantium and elevate rome kind of thing so there could have been less playful machinations at at play here right but all we really have are theories but if if it was a real person who thought he was pressed to john writing that letter I struggle to find evidence that the author would have been one of the same Prester John's people were encountering in, in, in Central Asia. No doubt. Where does... So, wait, I actually don't know this. Does the original letter... like the Or, well, one of the mm. original translated versions exist? I'm assuming the original, original doesn't... We, we, we don't have that in any museum or archive. Well, anywhere. I'm not sure about the original, original, but because it, it was rewritten, and it, this is the mm. other interesting thing. Although it was addressed specifically to the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, and to the Emperor of Byzantium, copies of it started showing up all over Europe. Yeah. It was being printed, it was being copied and disseminated. So more people than it's, the people it's addressed to suddenly started getting these anonymous letters, which also kind of ties it almost into being a hoax or a political mm-hmm. ploy to get people thinking and talking about it. Almost like, you know, during wars when planes fly over enemy territory and drop pamphlets. It almost seems like there's a parallel there. Where So I don't know about the original documentation, but because it, was, it became so popular that the translated versions I found are based off real versions that exist. And you get medieval mm-hmm. manuscripts that have the letter of Prester John. It was one of those popularly translated documents, but one of the yeah. original yeah. parchments dedicated to the emperors and the popes. I do not know of the existence of these. Mm-hmm. But... Because the and, and the interest, like the, the reason I'm asking is because obviously if we have the original or one of the earlier... Mm. I guess that wouldn't matter. As soon as it's translated, that's where the the evidence, I guess I'm air quoting again for an audio show, which I do all the time on Into the Portal, everyone. <laughs> so so that you're going to get a lot of that from Andrew and the Mistorians. But could we pinpoint where the actual paper was from? Where the actual, what it was, you know, mm. the, the ink used and the paper it's written on, where was that sourced from? Because then that might give us a little bit more of a, a paper trail, again, I'm air quoting, to, to find out who wrote it. Because could it have been whatever could it have been a paper that originated still in europe but far enough away that it would have taken a person of influence and wealth and whatever to Mm. get it um did it come from the east could it have actually been but it was just procured by someone and written done in the west you know what i mean and that would have really been putting on the ruse right if we could find the original manuscript 
<clears throat> see the paper in which it was written, the ink, the handwriting. I think it would give us a really good direction. I mean, the reason why it is uh, yeah. speculated that it was written um, by Jewish authors from France or Italy is because mm-hmm. when it's, because this, this text was translated into numerous languages, including into, into Hebrew, but just linguistically, it has a lot in common with uh, Hebrew scholars and their style of writing from that period. So that's why one of the theories right. is that it had a, a Hebrew scholar was the author. But at the same time, I, the assumption, I think, is that it was a Western European based off the language, but no one has the physical text to undertake mm-hmm. further analysis in other directions. That would be really interesting. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're definitely will get into similar similar things like that on this show. Like I have a feeling we might dip into something like the Voynich manuscript Ooh. and where that paper was sourced from and all that kind That'd of fun stuff like that. Um I really am coming down coming down to the end here with this because I feel like I'm there's there's only a few, a few rabbit holes to go mm. down honestly because they're because they are so like random and crazy. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like it 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 does seem like it, we we've dialed this in to to a series of historical events and historical figures, but there is no singular Prester John. To me, I, I still hope that there would maybe be, and again, I think this is what I was trying to say earlier when I was like, you know, I was ra- you know, brought up like Catholic, but I'm not religious. It's like, I have no vested interest in there being some sort of ruins discovered in the mountains of a far off Eastern jungle or whatever. Right. But if there was, mm. that would be pretty fascinating because then there would maybe be some, you know, if it dated to, right at the the dawn of christianity then maybe that would be something to kind of tie to it'd be like oh, yeah well it would be it would yeah. be historically fascinating to to even to even find something like that and i think what i love about the story of prester john from what i've learned i mean i kind of went into it being like could there have been a prester and right. now i'm sort of like well the letter is one thing the letter gave rise mm-hmm. to the mythical prester and then people found physical prester john's to fill out the boots of the letter, but they never could quite do it because they're never quite the way right. Europeans imagined them. But I did sort of find yeah. the whole story is, it's this fascinating epic in a way. I mean, it starts with the Crusades. It starts with this horrible war between Muslims and Christians, which was, it's just, I mean, where atrocities were committed in in horrifying amounts and just you start with this like really like dark and dismal part of human history and then we sort of spiral away from there to the dawn of the mongol empire and all the machinations and realpolitik of genghis khan establishing himself and then we have this age of exploration and people give up on the crusades realize that committing genocide against another religion isn't actually a nice thing to do and the christians start looking elsewhere to spend their time and money and they start exploring africa and as they're in africa then we have ethiopia this ancient kingdom that has the ark of the covenant in one of their monasteries it's just this incredible story that it's almost it is almost the story of medieval europe in some way it kind of it has Mm -hmm. all the beats of what made medieval europe what saw medieval europe change the way their approach to the world began to change this, this yeah. shift from warring to sort of tentative voyages to Asia to full-on sea voyages that would ultimately lead to the discovery of the Americas. And it all kind of swirls around this anomalous Prester John. And as I said in my conclusion, right. for, for better or for worse, Prester John forced 
the European world into the rest of the world. And it's like, it's what a momentous thing for him to accomplish. And so I find the story fascinating. I mean, even if Prester John didn't exist, and I know that for the Christian kingdoms, especially during the times of the Crusades, they really wanted Prester John of the letter to be real because that was the man that would save them from what they perceived as the threat of, of, of the Muslim kingdoms. And so they really wanted Prester John to be real. And there's a part of me, I always love it when the most fantastical is the most real. I mean, it'd be, I, I kind of would, I wouldn't mind if Prester John turned out to be real because that's like cool and fantastical. Sure. But at the same time, I feel the real stories that formed the basis of this myth are so interesting, yeah. but also really completely unknown. And the way they all link yes. into each other, the fact that yeah. the Mongols can link to Ethiopia, can link to the Crusades, the fact that this all can happen, the machinations between Rome and Byzantium and the, the Muslim kingdom sort of caught in the middle of this, this whole political and adventurous web of exploration and warfare. It's just, it's a fascinating mm -hmm. historical thing, even without the fantastical. And of course, the fantastical, to find the actual ruins of the capital of Prester John in India, say. And there could be something, as you say, created by the St. Thomas Christians. Mm -hmm. That would be, that just adds a little bit extra to a story that for its historical value alone, I find absolutely interesting. Totally. There couldn't really have been a better first first topic to cover on this show. I feel like just because like everything you just said, like this was this this uh, course of over the course of history and this character of Prester John really did end up sending off these ex expeditions and was was the linchpin yeah. for a lot of these things. So it's, I feel like that's a perfect metaphor for the show yeah. because we're going to be heading off in a million different directions. <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be searching in vast corners of the earth. And, and much like Prester John, we're looking at how mythical fictional or rumored things had a very real measurable influence on actual human history as well exactly and John is there. i wish I, I i do wish that there was one more little piece to this uh like say for example maybe the idea that the sword the emerald mm. sword was a real relic or artifact to be discovered almost like a holy grail oh, type yeah. vibe to it because then that would obviously be another little tidbit to the story who knows maybe the ethiopians uh, uh, ethiopians have been keeping uh, their lips shut and they do have Prester John's <laughs> sword right next to the uh, the ark the ark of the covenant uh, maybe yeah. the if they find an there. emerald scepter somewhere in Aksum or alternatively somewhere in iran things might get a little different as far as the analysis of these of this historical and mythical record go <laughs> But, you know, that's right. fascinating. I mean, Prester John, really, he had more power than popes and kings when it came to starting crusades and yeah. and encouraging people to explore and to travel. You know, really fascinating character. And as, I, as you say, as you say, what a, great, what a great introduction to what I hope this podcast becomes. Yes, absolutely. And honestly, we want to know what all of you listening have to have to say about Presser John and if you've heard of this story uh, as well, because obviously it was new to me. And we definitely want to just get your feedback on episode one. Mm. We do not have a Facebook page up yet, but I will be working on that. But you should uh, come and follow us. We've got a couple of accounts up. So we are on Instagram at The Mistorians and also on Twitter at The Mistorians as well. So come follow us on there. They're brand new accounts we've just started, but we would love to interact and chat with all of you listening. And uh, yeah, get your feedback absolutely. on the the mythical kingdom of Prester John. Do you have anything else to to, to say, Nick, before we sign off yeah. here on episode one? I mean, this has been a blast. This has been an absolute blast. It's been so much fun. I would love to hear what people have to think and say about this. 
I, I really, there's so much more that could be said. And I mean, each one of my chapters, I'm using Andrew's air quotes when I say this, each one of my chapters <laughs> could have been a podcast on its own. I'd condense a lot, cut a lot out. Uh, and if people, you know, feel I really skipped over something or I was too general with something else, please tell me on social media because I love that. Uh, I'm just going to quickly shout out uh, where you can follow me. I am on Instagram. Absolutely. I'm on Instagram at Nick Swift Diggs. That is N-I-K-S-W-I-F-T-D-I-G-S. I post a lot of stuff about art and archaeology because I am a professional archaeologist. So there's a lot of archaeology stuff and also a lot of Hell comic yeah. book art because I like to do that as well. You can also follow me personally on Twitter. I am at Nick and Daniel. That's N-I-K-A-N-D-D-A-N-I-E-L. And I wish I had started mm-hmm. a new Twitter account with a more professional sounding name. But here we are. I've had this Twitter account for nearly a decade <laughs> now. My friend made it for me for my birthday. And I think that really sums it all up. You can also buy my book, The Astro Hulk, on Amazon. So why not? Why not check that out as well? It's a science fiction Absolutely. horror story. It's 60 pages long and it costs less than a slice of street pizza in New York. You can buy it and read about space adventure. And I think that really sums up all the shout outs. I want to do Andrew, what do you have to shout out? That's awesome. Yeah, no, and we will include the links for that, for that, Nick, and obviously uh, all, all the links for, for the Mistorians. This is the uh, premier podcast uh, being produced on Straight Up Strange Productions, which is the podcast network that we are a member of. And uh, so we're really excited to, to be the first show uh, on that feed. And just stay tuned for, uh, for more to come from Straight Up Strange. So you can uh, hit up straightupstrange.com to check out the rest of the lineup, as well as other projects that are going to be coming down the pipeline. And there's going to be some extremely exciting things uh, in development with uh, with Nick and I here, not just on the show, but with other things as well. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for listening, and uh, we will see you next time on The Mistorians. Andrew, I feel our good ship Mistoria has safely docked at the port of the expectant ears of our audience. I'm now honking a horn to indicate <laughs> our successful, and now, well, now the gangplank's going down, and now we can disembark so yes. <laughs> this is a really sweaty oh. sign off from me i love it no i love it thank you guys all so much for listening we are now docked so you can uh, we can exit and prepare for uh, the next episode coming soon from the mistorians Make sure to follow us on Instagram at The Mistorians Podcast. And if you enjoyed this first episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and stay tuned for more to come from The Mistorians. <laughs> <laughs>